Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features former political editor of The Independent on Sunday, Jane Merrick. Uh, Jane is someone that I've got to know through social media and she recently set up her own news digest website called The Spoon, which gives you a a high-quality briefing in your inbox every morning uh, in a digestible format and it's absolutely brilliant. She's had a varied uh, journalistic career working for PA, the Daily Mail and the Independent on Sunday, now as a freelance and, as I say, someone who's set up her own uh, news website. Uh, She's also um, a fascinating political thinker and we talk about her own politics and the influences on that and her upbringing. Uh, And she's also um, a time... She was a time person of the year in 2017, uh, along with Taylor Swift, something that, uh, as we learn, uh, massively impressed her daughter. Um, But that was for uh, her role in speaking out against uh, sexual um, exploitation in Westminster, sexual harassment in Westminster, and it led to the uh, downfall uh, of Michael Fallon. We talk about that uh, in some detail, um, and we talk about a whole range of things. You should be aware this episode was recorded, I think, during Labour Party Conference Week. So if there are things we're talking about that are happening this week or last week, to use uh, those phrases, that's when it took place. If I've I've explained that possibly as poorly as I possibly could, um, but just for just so that you're aware, if we're talking about the conference and things that have been said this week, uh, it it refers to a few weeks ago, the Labour Party conference of 2018. Uh, so enjoy. Uh, Jane Merrick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I've had... I'm trying to think what other political journalists have had Owen Bennett... Yeah. ...was in. And it, it, it's just fascinating to get an insight into the life of a political reporter. So you've had various political reporting roles and journalism roles in your, in your career. Uh, you spent five years at the Daily Mail... Yes. ...as a political <laughs> correspondent. I mean, that in itself, I'm sure we could talk about for hours. I suppose the first thing that anyone would want to know is... How much contact did you have with Paul Dacre and what was he like? Um, I think in five years, I I never met him once. No way! Um, we were in the lobby anyway, we were in, in Westminster, so you yeah. sort of, you're one removed from the, the office and you very rarely go into the office. On the night of the... So I worked there 2003 to 2008, and the night of the 2005 election, we all had to go into, you know, Northcliffe House, where yes. the Daily Mail was produced. And... Um, and Dacre was in the room and it sort of, it was, everyone was expecting, you know, Labour to do pretty well, but obviously take a bloody nose. I think the splash the next morning was, you know, yes, you did give Blair a bloody nose. Yeah. But I just remember at one point, I think he could smell that I was sort of left wing <laughs> because I was sitting there and I was watching the, the seats for Labour falling yeah. and he came up 
and this is the only contact I had with him in five years, he just rocked the back of my chair as the seats, as, as Labour were losing seats, and I thought, oh, he's obviously wow. can tell that I'm not a true true Daily Mail believer, and, you know, yeah, he could he could sort of sense my, you know, uh, feelings about the, the election night, although I tried to sort of keep it completely neutral and not give anything away. And was that, was that, that rocking of the chair, was that, is that a humorous thing? Is that a kind um, of banter, or is that a kind of power No, move? I think it was a pretty strong passive aggressive power move yeah 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 but he didn't i mean he didn't you know he didn't swear at me or anything so it was all right how hard is it and how hard was it to be left wing at the daily mail um it's or more to the point to be left wing and be at the daily mail well i tell you what it was actually it was you i used to sort of say okay it's just a bit like being a barrister where you have to defend a case and basically it was during the years of as you as you know the kind of the second, third term of Blair's government, the Iraq war, the Hutton inquiry, and actually a lot of it was pretty straightforward reporting on what was going on. Yeah. And actually, I think political journalism shouldn't be about, you know, supporting... If you're reporting, you shouldn't be supporting one side or the other. You just report what's happening. So a lot of my work was actually reporting the Hutton inquiry, you know, uh, the Iraq war from, from Westminster and what was unfolding and the select committees and David Kelly's death. And a lot of that was just straight reporting. So I never had to write opinion pieces. I never really had to sort of write anything that I was really uncomfortable with. But but actually, towards the end, and I went on to The Independent on Sunday, I remember they were running... Their, their sort of rhetoric seemed to get stronger throughout that decade against Blair, and it was a relief, actually, to be able to go to a paper where I felt more comfortable on everything like Europe, you know, immigration... Social issues. And... Social issues, um, social conservative issues, you know, a lot of gene... Jean's, um, you know, the sort of stem cell stem research. Cell research. Yeah. I really, really, you know, was appalled at their line on that because I had a family connection with cystic fibrosis. And I and just leaving the Daily Mail and going to the Independent on Sunday and being able to sort of... But, it, but again, it was, I think, as I said, any political journalist, you have to be kind of always questioning authority, whether it's Labour in government yeah. or the Tories in government. I think that's more important. But was there ever any pressure from anyone to say, actually, come on, you know, be a bit harder on Blair or be a bit harder on Labour or be a bit more conservative? Um, probably, you know, probably in those... But it was never really... It was never a kind of edict. There was never a memo going out saying you've got to write this story this way. It was just a kind of, you know... That was the general... So actually, the, the main problem the was just that you were at the Daily Mail rather than the culture being particularly bad. Yeah, I mean, I was a, I was the most junior reporter in, in the lobby team. I wasn't the political editor, so I never had to write opinion pieces no. or um, take a view. It was it was basically reporting and being the naughty kid in the playground. <laughs> but also, what an amazing time to be in the lobby. Yes, yeah. The end of the last Labour government, an era-defining prime minister, an era-defining military intervention, to have a ringside seat. You must have so many technical memories from that period. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I joined the lobby in 2001. I started at oh, amazing. the Press Association um, the day that the 2001 election was delayed. Because, because of foot and mouth. mouth, yeah. And I thought, thank God it's been delayed by a month because I'm sort of, you know, I've just come from... Liv- I was reporting news in Liverpool and I've just come down and had to get my feet on the table as a political correspondent. And actually it was it was a really good election to cover because it was... Everybody knew that Labour was going to win, but how much by and mm. the sort of general feeling about apathy. And it was a good... It was sort of in the days when it was obviously two-party politics, completely different to now... And it was the days where you had battle buses and it was much more sort of... It was it was much more controlled in a way, yeah. but it was a good starting point. 
And then we had 9-11, um, you know, the day I was at PA on a late shift and I came into the office and my first job on that day was to go to the Foreign Office where Jack Straw was wow. Jack Straw was basically in charge of the government because Tony Blair was at Brighton at the TUC. That's right. And I had to go and be the PA reporter taking down what <sighs> Jack Straw's first response as the government response to 9-11 was. And I remember feeling quite composed because as a reporter you have to kind of shut off from emotions a lot of the yeah. time. And Jack Straw walks in as the guy, as the Foreign Secretary, and his hands were shaking as he walked in with his my notes. God. And I thought, oh, my God, if his hands are shaking, I mean, this is kind of, I'm pretty worried. And I think they were closing airspace over Westminster. And you go into a kind of, because because it's PA as well, and you have to kind of do the shorthand really quickly, you go into almost an automaton thing of writing down what he says, and then you come out, and then you let your emotions take over because you've done your job, and you can just go, oh, my God, this is just, the, you know, one of the worst days ever. But also, I mean, in a weird way, if you're at this, if you get to be around the centre of those things, the, the momentous personal experiences, really, in terms of a career, mm. to, to to have been so close to power at a time when power was so important. Yes, I mean, actually, I always found because I, well, our PA was different, but when I was at the Mail, we were obviously the Mail's position was opposed to the Labour government, and yeah. then I was at the Independent on Sunday. But we were always kind of a bit of the naughty kid in the playground still against Gordon Brown's (laughs) government. And then actually when the coalition came in in 2010, we were then in the position of being quite critical of the government again. So I've always been, I've always worked for places where, you know, it's always about taking a sort of holding the government to account on what are they doing next and finding out what, what they're doing wrong. And that was always, I think that's a good position to be in. It seems to be at the mail, I don't want to overly talk about the mail, but if you're left wing, and I'm guessing therefore, you know, people in your network would be left wing, would people say to you, oh, come on, Jane, you can't work for this paper? Was it a problem for your family and friends? It, yes, it was, actually, to be honest. I've been thinking back. Yeah, I've, you know, I have relatives um, who found it difficult, and it was, it was difficult. It was difficult. I'm not denying it. But it was a, you know, it was also a. It was a job in politics, and actually I come down from Liverpool, I wanted to be in the lobby, and somebody offered me a job on a national newspaper, and I think when you're young and when you're starting out in, in political journalism, you can't really be choosy. Not everybody yeah. can walk into a column on The Guardian. That's right. And, um, you know, there was never anything that I wrote that I was really uncomfortable with, so you're able to sort of justify, but actually it's a relief when you when you leave. So you, you then go on to be the political editor of The Independent on Sunday, mm. which is a step up. Um, in terms of the role of a political editor, how does that differ from being a political reporter? You're, very, you're much more in control, obviously, of the, the output for the paper. But you're sort of setting up interviews with um, politicians and prime ministers and leaders of the opposition. And there's a lot more pressure because especially when we're now in conference season, yeah. every summer would be the sort of thing of you have to set up meetings with your editor set, um, and whatever cabinet minister and you set up an interview and you've got to really kind of, you're not guiding the coverage in the sense that obviously the editor gets to do that, but you have to bring in stories, you know, the responsibility is on you to bring in stories and it's, it's, it's tough, but it's also you get great access. Well, in terms of access then, and and how that changed from being at the Daily Mail and the Independent on Sunday, did any of your relationships with the politicians you'd built up as contacts change when you moved papers? It's interesting. They didn't change on the Tory side. So I had Tory contacts from when I was at the Mail, and they were still friendly because, you know, 
they recognise that you're doing a job. But actually, a lot of Labour people who didn't speak to me for five years were suddenly speaking to me. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's, it, you know, it's interesting. And people, have, I think there are some people who really are very tribal and they will just refuse to speak to you. And I mean, I can't, na- I don't want to name names, but they will just refuse to speak to you. But there are some people who, and I think you can see that in Parliament as well, that you see friendships between two parties. Yeah. And they complete, can completely disagree. And I'm thinking of, off the top of my head, Jess Phillips and Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yeah. Completely different opinions on social conservatism. Yeah. And yet you can have a friendship because you re- you recognise that you're all sort of in Westminster and you've all got to get along. But I don't think you can be too friendly because you've always got to say, if my best mate in politics, if I found out a scandal about this person, would I report it? And the mm. question has to be, if it was a if it was corruption that you were exposing or sexual harassment, yeah. I think you have to expose it. I think that's your duty as a journalist. And in a way that they are the individual who've compromised the friendship by. Yes doing what they've done yeah. the, the onus should never be on the innocent not to report yeah. um, so you, you, you go to the, the Independent on Sunday 2008 so Blair has just left yes. you, you've got a brown premiership what was your relationship like with, with Downing Street in those years it was it was interesting because they were very defensive I think with everybody I think um, you know I had good contacts with Brown's side because actually Paul Dacre had a great bizarre That's he had right, a great yeah, friendship yeah, with Gordon yeah. Brown over As did those Rupert years. Murdoch, yeah. Yeah, so the sort of so the Daily Mail there was a Daily Mail, you know, connection there in a way. Um but that yet yeah, they were just they were they were much more closed off. I mean when when it was when Blair was in government it was almost a kind of there were two opposition part well num- numerous opposition parties, including the Brownites against mm. the Blairs. And you would often get great stories from Brownites about what was going on in in the government, which was was just bizarre, but then as soon as they got in, as soon as the, as soon as Gordon Brown got into number ten, it was very, it was a lot of um, shutdown of access. So it just became a case of reporting and you know um, pursuing whatever stories we thought were good. But it was it was I wouldn't say it was really cosy with anybody. And what what are the tools you've got at your disposal as a political editor of a, of a major paper? I mean, obviously you can sort of there's the carrot. You know, we'll do a nice piece on you, let us in, and it's good mm-hmm. for you. Um, do you ever find yourself not making threats, but having to be more direct or stern, or or perhaps using threats? No, never, never anything like that. I mean, I think, and not even with the carrots either. I think it was always about, you know, can we do this interview? And if they would say, okay, but you can't ask us about this, then or off. Actually, for example, um, I worked alongside John Rental, um, who was a chief political commentator, and we would go along. We would put forward a suggestion for an interview and they would request that John Rental wouldn't come along because he was seen as a Blairite. Yes. Or he would get an interview with somebody and and they would request I wouldn't come along. And the, our editor was saying, you can't, you can't dictate to us who can come to the interview or not. That's ridiculous. And so, no, I, th- I think, I mean, maybe other, maybe it happens in other newspapers, but no, I've never, never used a sort of, you know, if you, if you don't report this, then we'll do this. We'll I, mean, I, I know some newspapers might do that, but I've never, never done that. It was a, it was always, you know, you just want to interview somebody if you've got a good idea for a story, if you've got an angle. You know, if we were running, say, a campaign on dementia, then we'd, we would try and use that as a way to say, OK, if you're interested in a subject, then please can you talk to us about it? That would be the way to do it, but not no sort of quid pro quo. So if they did say, oh, only Jane or, or not Jane, would you then not do the interview at all? Or would that um, sometimes be acceded to? I think we... 
no, we ref- we refused. Yeah, we 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 would go ahead and do the interview with, and I would go with John Rental, yeah. or John would take me along. We would never, we never gave in to the sort of ridiculous requests. Good, I mean, ludicrous it was, requests. It was just bizarre, and also, but also depressing because I think if you're a cabinet minister or any politician, and you think that you can't take questions from a certain journalist because of their political views I think that's really sad that you're not able to be sort of to have your own views checked or questioned and I think it's a sign of weakness actually that you know and it was ridiculous as well because you know I'm not Jeremy Paxman John Rental's not Jeremy Paxman it was absurd that we were going to give them this grilling and I think yeah it was it was just quite quite sad actually so you you go straight into political reporting really and, and then and then political editing were you quite political as a as a as a young child? I was political, yeah, definitely. I mean, I grew up in Liverpool. Um, the eighties was sort of my sort of formative um, awareness about politics, and my parents were teachers. They were actually they were both born in working class households. My mother was the eldest of nine, living in a three bedroomed house, and my dad, similarly, in a in a, a small house, and they both studied and read books and they both passed the 11 plus and they used education to get to where they were and they became the middle class and in Liverpool at the time we had the militant council and this real sense of sort of of you know yes my parents were labour but they were appalled at the kind of the nihilism of militant because it was basically saying you can't aspire to anything Mm -hmm. and my mum recalls this sort of um, walking down the road and there was a protest by militant um against the International Garden Festival, which was this this um, garden festival that was opening in Liverpool in 1984, so a year yeah. before the Neil Kinnock speech. And they were protesting about the idea of having a garden festival <laughs> because it was sort of, they were saying, we want jobs, not trees. And you say, why do you have to choose between jobs, not trees? Yeah, what a ludicrous choice. And it was anti, and then they smashed, there was this, there's this beautiful Victorian um, glass house in Sefton Park in Liverpool, and they smashed the windows of this glass house, and it was it was derelict for for about twenty years, and this was allegedly done by some militant elements um, in the council because the gardener at the um, at the greenhouse refused to go on strike, and it was a sort of one of the many st- sort of hard left strikes that were being held, and there was this sort of thing of you know you can't have nice things, yeah, and and that was I found that so depressing, and then in 1985, my mother was one of the 30,000 workers in Liverpool who had a redundancy notice taxied round by Derek Derek Hatton (laughs) and um, and yeah and that was that had such a profound effect because when Neil Kinnock brought it up at the Labour conference it was like he was recognising what was going on in Liverpool and sending a lifeline to people in Liverpool to Labour voters in Liverpool to say this is not a Labour this is not what Labour are in politics for well and this is highly relevant now not just because of of Corbynism but because just a few weeks ago uh, by the time people listened to this uh, would have had the Labour Party conference and the phrase it's better to break the law than break the poor was something that Corbyn supporters were openly uh, parroting again on on national TV Uh, and firstly I mean, anyone who's even the humblest student of that period of, of militant will know that if it involves in lose the loss of jobs of working class people from the local authority, that is invo- that is breaking the law and breaking the poor. It is absolutely, and and they never went through with the. I mean, I interviewed Derek Haston about this three years ago, but they never went through with the threats. But there was always, always that threat, and I, I've spoken to my mother about this countless times since. 
And she said because they were in the NUT and I think there was Newpy and Nalgo, the three unions were seen as sort of white collar. Mm. And there was always that threat of the sort of hard left wanting to basically break those unions. And they did worry about being made redundant before Christmas. And it was a it was a genuine threat. And they could have carried it out. And I think it's sort of it's completely disingenuous to say that this was everybody knew it was just a stunt because at the time it wasn't. No. And I think so many of the people that, that talked about it in Liverpool at Labour, they either have forgotten what happened that, during that period or they just weren't, weren't born then and they just don't realise what it was and how, and how far... You know, actually, the Thatcher government starved Liverpool and many, and many working-class cities in the north of, of funding and it was completely outrageous but actually militant damaged Liverpool as well because it set the city back for mm. years and years. And it was, and, and they, you know, the sort of revisionism that's going on now is just so depressing. Also, there's a kind of, uh, that I always struggle with, and I would still count myself as someone on the left, the romanticism around the post-war settlement and even the 80s and striking, it, it seems to me to predominantly come from people who were never really or would have been affected by it. Mm. Going out and strike is horrible. Yeah, it deprives your family of money. It, the, the fear and the the paranoia that it creates about your own future and your ability to pay the bills, and you're already in a precarious uh, situation. Usually, life was dreadful after the war. Thank God we had the mm. formation of the NHS, the welfare state. Mm. But uh, I heard people talking about the Labour Party conference this year. There's no way I would want to go back to 1945, even yeah. with all the problems we have as a society now. Life is way better for working people in 2018 than it was in 1945. Absolutely, and because of the achievements of the of the Blair government, <laughs> from like the minimum wage and, yeah. and and rising employment and investment in public services, and that's all of that is being sort of erased by Corbynism, and it's and and the, yeah, exactly. Laura Smith talking about the general strike. I mean, it's just absurd, and nobody goes on strike lightly. No, nobody does. It's such a hard thing, as you say, to do. And it's a last resort. And it's and it's this idea that it's, you know, people who have studied politics think and studied Corbynism think that it's sort of a great thing to talk about. I think it's a lot of people who, if they haven't grown up in a working class community, really romanticise it. And mm. I I mean, it's all about this conversation with Owen Jones I get on very well with. And he's sort of, he's basically middle class. And I, I wouldn't even say I was working. I think I was from the underclass. I grew up on benefits in a single parent family in a very, very rough part of town. And yet I came out of that as a Blairite. And I often think a lot of these middle-class people, and I think with very good intentions, kind of romanticise the authenticity of a working-class upbringing or whatever, whatever they think it is. They think there's just something a bit more honest about it without realising that the vast majority of working-class people want to get out. And what, yeah. one thing that every generation of parents wanted is for their children to have a better life than they had. Mm-hmm. And I was, I, I've always sort of felt that drive that I would never want to have to live... I'm very lucky that I was brought up in a household, firstly, with a very loving parent. That's the mm-hmm. most important sort of um, privilege you can have, really. But I, I hear people, I, I sort of meet, people I get on with talk about working-class life and culture, and I just think a lot of it's patronising, and yeah. they sort of presume that you've got... And I'm a big football fan, but you know, I see sort of John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn at football matches wearing a jacket with a with a brand-new scarf over their shoulders and just think... It all just feels a little bit phony and it feels a little bit patronising. Yes. Even if I totally accept they do want a better world for working class people, yeah. I think I find it a bit odd. It's it's completely inauthentic, I think. I mean, I, I think John McDonnell is, is, doesn't have the background as Jer- of Jeremy Corbyn. You know, he, he does have a genuinely mm. working class background. But yes, I mean, I, I was talking about my parents earlier. I mean, I am, yes, I was born into a middle class household, but they, 
remember what it was like to not have running water and to have to share three kids to a bedroom. And my mother sort of reading her way out of, of basically poverty didn't didn't want her children to go through that again and didn't doesn't want any child to go through that and passionate about education I mean that's why they went into teaching you know my dad taught in Knowsley which is the sort of most disadvantaged council in the country for 45 years and and sort of knowing that education is the way to get out of this and this is and sort of I don't know whether you saw the um the party political broadcast last night by the Labour Party it's again it's sort of it's saying to working class communities it's quite patronizing about how, yes, you've been left behind by globalisation, but almost narrowing their focus of saying, mm. don't look ahead, don't don't think about globalisation yeah. as a way of getting you out. We'll protect local jobs. And, and the sort of very, it's a yeah. very localist thing rather than looking further to your horizons and thinking about what could possibly be. And this idea that aspiration has become a dirty word in British politics, yeah. it's just extraordinary. You know, you mention it on Twitter and you're castigated by Corbyn supporters exactly and it's just it's just where we are and it, I find it very depressing and the thing is with it is that everyone can have their own personal life that they choose to some people mm. are perfectly satisfied staying in the community that they grew up in they've got no desire to move to London or or mm. go to America or India or wherever else yeah. but other people will want to do that and I just think you're absolutely right to to sort of pat working class people on the head and say don't you worry you know working class kids should want to travel the world if yes. they want to and should be able to and it should be the state should be enabling people to to fulfill whatever ambition it is they have yeah and i do I, you know I'm, I'm very proud of the area that i grew up in but I, I, I could not wait to get out of there yes and the same i mean liverpool is a fantastic city but at the time when i was wanting to leave it wasn't and yes. it was you know it had gone through the 80s and the 90s and i went away to university and derek hatton said to me 2 days ago you ran away from Liverpool, you left us behind. And I said, I, I was offered a job in London. You know, I know job creation isn't on your list of priorities, but I was offered a job in London, you know, and that's what I wanted to go and do. And what what is wrong with that? And this is part of the... I suppose this goes to the heart of what is the economic solution to the problem we find ourselves in and what is the political solution to it is... Just on a personal level, like I think politics and economics has to follow like human behaviour and human instincts. And it's all well and good saying that... So, for instance, the death of the high street, we all mourn it. But no one was shopping in those shops. That mm. wasn't just about rates and about things. That was about people saying, well, I'd rather go to the big Tesco. We can drive there and we can get food and clothes and a TV. It was, in the end, it wasn't just the offer. It was that people did prefer what was on offer to going to the butcher and the baker and yeah. doing it like that. And the same as with London is you can't blame people for wanting to go there. Yes. Uh, and equally, you know, part of it, I always fantasise about living in Scotland because the air's cleaner and the water's <laughs> nicer and all stuff like that. You can't blame people for wanting out of their lives the things they want out of it. And London yeah. offers so much to people that other places don't. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you look at Corbyn's speech yesterday, a lot of what he was saying, you know, is very was is very appealing if you don't sort of scratch the surface. And actually it reminded me, it was almost kind of a lot of it was coalition 1.0, coalition first term, so yeah. green investment and green jobs share-owning democracy, childcare pledge. It was all very sort of... It was almost a left-wing populism. or sort of, It was like the Lib-, Lib Dem wish list during the coalition. Mm. But it does feel like there was no acknowledgement of where we are now about, you know, where are the main drivers? Where are the, where are the new jobs, te- technology jobs, that we're going to have to plan over the next 50 years? And the, the depressing thing is that Brexit has sort of squashed any debate about this because yeah. everybody's... Has rightly obsessed about Brexit, but we're not talking about 
what are the main influences on our children? You know, there's sort of huge followings on YouTube that YouTubers have yeah. for ch- on children. And that's sort of that's becoming the news. You know, politicians have very little influence. And people, the whole thing about the sort of bad side of populism, it's allowed fascism to rise in, in, in Europe and allowed Donald Trump and Brexit. But it comes from somewhere and you can condemn the fascist side of populism. But you can also say, actually, there is a kind of social justice or a, con- a populism of of the left or the centre that is about wanting to take back control. Yeah. And I think that's because of the, the sort of the way that local government has been underfunded under austerity, yeah. that local government has collapsed. And yet, actually, that's the best way that people can access services and access power. And because they've lost that power, they're going to try and find power in other ways. And they can see that the sort of they can see the way on social media that that's how they can get famous and that's how they can get control and all of that sort of doesn't seem to be acknowledged at all by politicians but on it, on it from either party actually no and i think with corbyn what he definitely i remember andy burnham saying to me that he'd basically been saying what corbyn had been saying for 3 or 4 years and he stood in that first leadership election against ed did he did he oh cry, I, I lose track of those leadership elections but that basically he said that Corbyn was saying what I was saying, but Corbyn represented it better. Yes. Was that it felt more authentic coming out of Corbyn's mouth than it did out of his. And I think Corbyn has a similar problem when you talk about whatever modernity is and whatever the future is, is that Corbyn feels authentic on things like injustice mm-hmm. and public services and things like that. But when you talk about what is the future of the British economy, and apart from anything else, I want to be excited about the future. Mm. And what Theresa May and Corbyn both present, I think, is a really depressing brand of politics, which is the world's awful and we're going to have to go through really difficult times in order to sort this out. None of them are sort of talking about, you know, looking at a sunlit horizon in five yeah. years' time. And I think Cameron maybe did for a bit and then other things got in the way. Yes. Blair definitely did that. Gordon, to an extent, tried to. Yeah. But I want to feel good, and uh, and Corbyn does not represent to me a, a sort of energetic, exciting view of the future. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And actually, I am I am pro Remain, and I wish Brexit was never wasn't happening. But if you were pro Brexit, you're not even getting that. You're not even getting the vision on Brexit from the no. Prime Minister or anybody. You're not you're not getting any sort sort of you know. If you believe in Brexit, this is what we can offer you. I think Boris Johnson was the last person to do that, and his his reputation is obviously slightly you know, damaged. But yeah, there is no sort of, there is no hope of the future. And I think a lot of people are just, this, the, it's almost like the political debate is catatonic because of Brexit. And we can't have any debate about what else is going on. And actually austerity is still going on. The bedroom tax is still going on. Yeah. You know, Theresa May was talking last week, trying to give a positive um, speech about housing. But actually so extraordinary that she could say that the sort of let's let's end the stigma of, 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 living in a council house when her government was the one who introduced the bedroom tax and you know it is just it it's extraordinary that she is now sort of trying to to sort of appeal obviously to working class communities and and with this whole idea of you know let's ending the stigma of social housing but there is no sort of it's completely unbelievable because of what the government has done on on housing and underfunded housing and you know on the bedroom tax. In terms of you then as a, as a political person, as a journalist, did it ever occur to you? Was it ever a choice? Was it ever an option to go into politics rather than journalism? It's, that's a really good question no one's ever asked me. Um, no, because I, you know, growing up in Liverpool, I never felt like I would ever get to Westminster. It was such a distant place. Yeah. And actually I, 
you know, I wanted to be, I really wanted to be a journalist. I saw Kate Adie reporting, I think, from Tripoli in 2006, yeah. and I really wanted to do that. But I also felt that it was, it's a, it was a bit like politics is not, I'm not a person that could be a politician. I couldn't be a leader. I couldn't sort of represent anybody. And that's quite a sort of, it's quite, now I'm now 44 and looking back and thinking, well, why couldn't I do that? Why didn't I have an, any kind of hope to want to do that? And I guess I never really felt that there was an opportunity there. And it was when I started working in Parliament. It was interesting. I turned up and I remember somebody showing me around the sort of, you know, the old building and everyone and saying, oh, it's a bit like a sort of minor public school. And I just thought, well, I have no idea what you're talking about because yeah. I went to a comprehensive. <laughs> and... I did feel a bit like an outsider working in Westminster. And I still do in a sense. I still sort of and I think a lot of a lot of people who have similar backgrounds to me do. Yeah. That there is it there's such a sort of a culture of it's a very there is that very old boys club. You know, there was a very sort of sense of if you if you betray somebody, if you call someone out, you're gonna get, you know Revenge. You, you will yeah. And so yeah, it just it just didn't feel it there was never any kind of, you know, you go to public school, Oxbridge, and then into politics. I, that, that path just seemed completely so far away from my path that but, it was never on the table. But now, as someone who has political influence, who, uh, and some of those emotions, I'm sort of been slightly debunked, you, you feel slightly more comfortable in the political arena, perhaps, than when you first arrived. Does it ever occur to you now? Do you ever think, this has got into such a mess, I feel like I want to stand up and do something about it? It's, it's interesting because for... You know, I, I stopped being a proper reporter on politics and, and became a commentator about three years ago. And I was able to have opinions and I was able to say, you know, God, I, re I really want the Labour Party to go back to what it was and not have Jeremy Corbyn because I'm, you know, against his brand of left-wing politics. And I've become much more opinionated. And actually, well, actually, I've allowed my opinions to be much freer. But, you know... The, the, I am politically homeless. I mean, I left the Labour Party in July. I couldn't vote for the Labour Party as it is because of anti-Semitism and all the other things. And, you know, actually Jeremy Corbyn has has said so many things about anti-Semitism that, that's just not convincing enough. And his speech yesterday just wasn't convincing enough. That I would love there to be, you know, I don't know what you would call it, but a sort of independent Labour Party or some sort of Labour Party. And I'm not saying I want to be in that party or sort of be an MP or be a, a leader of that party, but I would definitely help that party if it came on board. But yeah. I think it's just people, you know, putting their heads above the parapet and doing it. But, yeah, I would absolutely become involved in that. I'm not saying I'd become a politician, but maybe... I don't know. No one's ever, sort of, no one's ever suggested sort of it before, Mark. Well, no, I just think there's so many talented people out there that that hold themselves back from perhaps having a greater impact on society. I mean, you're having a huge impact, obviously, through the opinion pieces you write, and you set up your own website, The Spoon, yes. which is a, a, a sort of daily briefing or weekly briefing. It's daily. Daily. Every weekday. And actually, we, we started about a year and a half ago, and we, we launched just as the snap election was being called. And we just wanted to present the news in a really quick and easy way, when actually a lot of people have said, you know, they, they hate trawling through those sort of re the really long emails that are very good for insidery gossip, but they just wanted the sort of, you know, briefest yeah. summary. But also not to be patronised and not to have a kind of, you know, this is, you know, this is a sort of really useful way to say it. But just a really simple way. And I sort of, we have feedback from people at the school gate say that they love it because actually it's Brilliant. an email in their, in their inbox and they don't have to click on a website. Yes. We've got 
you know, grandmothers from witness have contacted us and said that they love, you know, they know more about North Korea mm. now than they, you know, they do from reading, reading mm. the BBC website. And actually a lot of, you know, we weren't the first email to come along because there were a lot of political emails. A lot of the main websites now are doing daily summaries yeah. as well. So we're sort of now competing in that environment. But The format of it is brilliant. And I think maybe it goes back to my days working in politics or whether it's just the way that these things should be written. But the question and answer format is a really good way of keeping you reading and giving yes. pertinent information in a particular way. Yeah. Um, and that would always be the way that we would brief politicians is to run through the questions they would get asked and the answers to give. Yeah. And it feels like that. It feels like a it feels like a high level briefing. Yes, that's good. Well, that's great to hear because that's what we wanted. We we didn't. I mean, obviously, you know, natural journalism stories have an intro and then they go into the detail, and that's yeah. great. And then there is a complete space for that. And what we did, I mean, it's sort of. I think the Guardian did did the pass notes. You know, we're, we're not original in doing that. But I think if you if you need to know facts in about three minutes then you're asking the questions of you know oh my god what has trump done now what does this mean why is this relevant to me you know what's going on in north korea um are we still talking about brexit and the sort of and i think that breaking it down like that it's not it isn't we're not patronizing readers but we just want readers to be able to to learn quickly what's going on and is there a is it left wing or right wing or independent or how would does no, it have any sort of bias? We don't. Stance? We try not to have a bias at all. And actually, I think when you know, obviously, I can sort of say what I feel on Brexit and and Theresa May and politics when I write my opinion pieces. But we try to keep it as neutral as possible because we we just want people. We don't want to present people with the facts. And we can sort of make a. You know, everybody makes a joke about Donald Trump, so we sort of make a joke about Donald yeah. Trump because that's all you can really do. But we try to be as as sort of down the middle as possible. Because that is an antidote, isn't it, to a lot of the new media, which is highly partisan, even more partisan than old media in many ways. You are a new media outlet that is independent. Yeah. It's yes. unique in that regard. And actually, yeah, I think I think, you know, those other websites are getting... They get huge traffic. They get huge clicks, and we and we are not. We we don't want to be sort of clickable in a way. We want to just be easy to read, and simple, and to not, you know, not present people with our own agendas, but just to present people with what's going, what's happening next. And actually, it's interesting. It takes me back to where my first job in journalism was, working for a news agency, and then actually working for PA. Is is almost that sort of boiled down into being studiously neutral and just presenting the things as they are. And I think there is a space for that. I think people do want to have a sort of, you I think know... more than any time I can remember. Yeah. There's such a desire for that. In terms of calling it the spoon, is that because it's a spoonful and that's a sort of a, <laughs> um, a manageable amount to digest? I'm trying to think back to when we were, we were first discussing it um, with the people we were talking about, and, and somebody around the table, we were, having a, uh, we were in a cafe and we were having coffee... And they picked up, we were sort of bouncing around ideas and somebody said, well, you know, you, you know, say you call it the spoon, but sort of, but as a joke, you know, like yeah. you could have picked up a, a, a sugar cube. Yeah. And then we just went, well, actually, that's a really good idea. And it's sometimes the sort of, you know, the jokiest ideas become the best, you know, the best ideas. And, <laughs> and yes, but yes, it does work in the sense of, you know, we, we don't want to be. We're not spoon feeding people because that obviously suggests that we are trying to tell people what to think. <laughs> but it is supposed to be a sort of an easy, you know, one mouthful of spoonful news. of sugar. Yes, it's got a sort of poppins angle on it. Um, <laughs> yes. What were the? Do you remember any of the other names that were being knocked around? 
Um, oh, they're probably embarrassing, really. I mean, it was sort of, but you know, sort of. I think nugget maybe, and it was like small things, but it was all. It all felt nut, Chicken nutshell, nutshell. <laughs> it felt a bit, you know. Yeah, well, that's it. it well, that, didn't feel right because that's what you're trying to get at, isn't it? And like, how do you say it without saying it? I guess is always the the trick of coming up with a good creative name. But yes, I'm awful at coming up with titles for things. Well, it's the hardest thing of a job. Yes, it is. It's difficult. And actually, um, oh, I don't know. I, when I when I was I did a a year out before university after school, and I I launched a listings magazine in Liverpool. It was my first wow foray into journalism. A kind of time out for Liverpool. It was a time out for Liverpool exactly, and that's how we pitched it to our you know, our advertisers. And we just we spent ages trying to think of a name and um, and we came up with L colon scene because it was like the scene in Liverpool. Yeah. And I remember someone saying to us, you can't have punctuation and you can't have a, you know, yeah, a, a kind yeah. of colon in a, in a title. And we said, well, of course you can. why not? We'll just make it different. And it became so sort of unusual that people remembered us and it was, yeah, it was a kind of, it was, it was good fun but completely mad to do it at 19 and... You know. Yeah, but that's the time to go out there and do silly yeah. stuff, isn't it? Yes. Before yeah. you start doubting yourself. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yes. Um... As well as the phenomenal accolades you have for your journalism, you're also named Time one of the Time a Time Person of the Year in 2017. Yeah, which is a phenomenal accolade to get. It's, Obviously, it's, it's for the reason you got it is is difficult. Yes, but and we'll talk about that. Although I don't want to go into too much detail about it, but um, is that a source of pride? It's a it's definitely a source of pride because I to be. You know, there was a huge, it was a huge sort of almost like a snowball, snowballing movement last last year. We're yeah. almost a year on, and watching other women coming out and talking about their experiences, and being part of that was amazing because you know it wasn't just what I had gone through with Michael Fallon, but every woman has a story of how they've you know almost every woman has a story about how they've been sexually harassed or assaulted or worse, and and so to be part of that was sort of finally say we're not going to stand for this anymore. And I never thought, I never thought that I would be part of something like this. You know, being a journalist, you're always on the other side of the notebook. You're never being interviewed. Of and I remember a very wise woman in politics that week, the week before I came out, saying to me that sometimes you don't choose a moment, sometimes the moment chooses mm. you, and you just have to be chosen and, and just do it. And, you know, this will be your full-time job for the next month. And she was right. 
and but sometimes you just have to do it and um yeah it was it's extraordinary and and I, I remember the kind of it was so it's such a sort of a huge thing but then also to read the stories of the other people that was that were included in that list and I feel incredibly honored to be on that list because actually there were women who were not on the list who should have been who were sort of I mean there were thousands of women who had come forward but there was a fruit picker there were women who worked in in um hotels who'd been sexually harassed and it just showed how and then and then it obviously went to the Hollywood stars and to Taylor Swift and it showed how it how widespread the problem was but you know my daughter is a Taylor Swift fan and I remember coming home and showing her the magazine and she couldn't believe that I was sort of alongside this list of women that included Taylor Swift and she said, you know, did you meet her? And I said, well, no, it was a different photo shoot in yeah, a different continent. just about to ask <laughs> But she was just, you know, and she, yeah, she was, I mean, to, to sort of see her pride actually was, was, you know. That is really cool, but it must have been, I remember seeing you on um, Lorraine talking about it, and it must have been different. Well, firstly, in terms of the incident itself and the way Michael Fallon was behaving, not just towards you, but towards multiple women, mm. I mean, there's... I've always tried to wrap my brains and thought about when I worked in politics, did I ever see anything like this? Because there's a difference between hearing uh, that someone is, uh, you know, someone's cheating on their wife or, mm. or that someone's a particular way. I've, I can't honestly say hand on heart that I remember ever seeing anything or witnessing anything. So then you think, well, these people must be very good at even doing it in public places, but mm-hmm. somehow having the sort of cheek and the confidence and the arrogance to be able to do it in crowded places and not, you know. In terms of what Michael Fallon was doing then and what he did to you, I mean, what he, the, the phrase you used was that he lunged at you. Yes, and it was actually in a in a very private place. It was in a sort of small corridor between Westminster Hall and then the the yard where the post office van turns around. And it was in a sort of almost like a cloakroom. And it was, I think a lot of these incidents happen through opportunism. Yeah. But they are sort of, you know, it's always a pattern of behaviour, but they just take the, the chance that, you know... And yeah, it was it was like it was incredibly creepy. I mean, you know, I remember talking to Julia Hartley Brewer about this because she had she was talking about how he'd put her his hand on her knee and she in a, at a busy dinner, and she acknowledges that actually it was different for her because she was a, you know a senior, more senior journalist. She was surrounded by colleagues and she was able to say, "Don't do that." But actually, for me, it was like being pounced on in a, in a kind of darkened alleyway. I mean, it was just and it was so sort of surprising. And again, I mean, I was, I was, you know, it was 2003, yeah, so I was sort of 29. And I remember thinking you're sort of, you, it was one of those periods where you think, okay, this is just one of those things that happened to you and you're just going to kind of forget about it and not report it because we didn't report things in those days. And it was never acceptable, but you just kind of got on with it and you had to tolerate it because and you always think, okay, okay, something's going to happen to me, and, you know, and then you just try and forget about it. And that has been the culture for so long with women and men. Actually, sort of, this is they allow it. They don't allow it, but they, it happens to them. And to to deal with it, they they just either forget about it or they don't challenge it. And it's not our fault that we haven't challenged it, but it's no. just our way of dealing with it. And I think the way that it, that completely flipped over a year ago was to say, well, we're not going to stand for this anymore. We're not going to tolerate this anymore. And you know, it was never. It wasn't the worst thing that's ever happened actually to me and it wasn't the worst thing that's happened to a woman but it did make me more you know nervous and aware whenever he was in the room it made me worry to report him because I thought I would be sort of blacklisted by the Tory whips and you know when I was a Daily Mail reporter so I had to 
you know, talk to Tory MPs all the time. And finally, sort of when I did come forward, and well, I re- actually reported him to Number 10 before I came out, and it was suddenly like, all that sort of control that he took away from me, yeah. I was taking back, and I took it back, and it was, it was a, an amazingly liberating feeling, actually. And did because one of these one of the things I've never been the victim of a, a sexual assault, but I've been violently attacked a couple of times. Sadly, been mugged a few times. Is it's the shock of it mm. at first? You almost can't believe it's happened, and I don't know if it's the same with that. Yeah, but it sort of happens, and then it, it feels simultaneously like it lasted for ages, and also that it was over very quickly. Yes. Yeah, and then there's just a kind of shock where you're just happy that it's over, and then. You almost don't think about it immediately. It is only in the passage of yes. time that you process what's happened to you. So I wonder if it's a similar thing with with, with Fallon. Yeah. And did were you interviewing him at, at the time, or was he just walking past a corridor? We'd been out for lunch, so it was sort of it was a you know I took M- MPs out for lunch three yeah. times a week, and you know you have a glass of wine at lunch. We had a glass of wine at lunch, and we were walking back from our the restaurant back to you know I had an office in the um, press gallery in the House of Commons, and he had an office. And we were just parting and saying goodbye, and he and he just took, you know, he just lunged at me and tried yeah. to kiss me on the lips, and I and I was and I was so shocked. <sighs> and as you say, you are sh- you're so shocked because it t- you're taken by surprise and you don't know how to react. And then before you know it, it's over. And I ran, I literally ran away. And then you're processing. You're saying, what should I have done better? You know, did I, did I lead him on by having a glass of wine with him, which is preposterous because I mean I had a glass of wine with. Lots of MPs over (laughs) almost, you know, more than a decade and no one else ever did it. And so you wondered, you know, was it something I said? And you're always blaming yourself for something that you did rather than Mm. what was it he he has done wrong. And yeah, and it's and it's you can sort of why does it have to be us that we have to sort of say what what did I do wrong and I think that was that question has been going around so many times and it was finally we no longer have to say was it something I did and and after that in between because about a decade and a half in between the mm. incident and then and then it being uh, and then uh, then you reporting it in that way was he different with you in, in those images or did he just sort of behave like nothing had happened oh he behaved like nothing had happened because Incredible. He, because I think he did you know he acknowledged when he resigned that this was you know, he had behaved badly in the past, and I think he he did do this. And he said in that interview a year ago that this was the kind of thing that was acceptable 10 or 15 years ago. And, I mean, it was never acceptable. No. But he thought it was acceptable. So, yeah, when I saw him again, I was kind of, you know, had my guard up. And But he, yeah, he acted like nothing had happened, and I think this is a sort of a common thing that, you know, people will just carry on as if there's no, you know... And did he once once the story broke? Did he get in touch with you and apologise? No, he's never contacted me. And actually, when I mean the sequence of events was that on the, there was the first weekend. I think the there was the Sun story that there was this dossier going round about about um, sexual harassment and so on. And I went and did some broadcasting, just talking about anonymously because I wasn't intending to name him because it had happened uh, sort of a decade and yeah. a half earlier. And to talk about what it to talk about what it was like to be sexually harassed by a politician, mm. and I'd just said he was a Tory MP, and you know I'd written about this before as well about what it was like, and a lot of people were saying to me, "Are you going to name him?" And I said, "Well, I'm I'm not going to name him because you know I feel it was a long time ago," but at the same time, other women were coming forward, and then I also heard, and I can only really say I can't be specific, but I heard 
other allegations involving Michael Fallon that were more recent. Yeah. And I was thinking, oh my God, you know, my failure to come out now is basically allowing this behaviour to continue. And he is doing it to women that are younger than me. That he's, it's, still, it's still happening. And if I don't say anything, it's going to carry on happening. And so I reported him to number 10, but I still didn't want to come out because I was worried about having press on my doorstep, my young daughter going to school and so on. And, and I was, but I was still, you know, I was still scared of, of the recriminations as well. And I reported him to number 10 and, that, and then he resigned about an hour later. And there was that feeling of, wow, I finally got back, I finally got back control. But I also felt like I still wasn't, because I wasn't coming out and talking about it, I wasn't being honest with mm. myself. And so, you know, eventually, a couple of days later, and because he was still explaining it away, he was still saying that it was just banter. I mean, he was talking about, you know, apparently there was an incident with Andrew Ledsom that was just dismissed as banter, and he was still belittling the behaviour. So I wanted to come out and say my piece, and I wrote this piece in The Observer about what had happened, how it was completely unacceptable. And, yeah, finally, you know, it was, it was, it was good that I had the platform to do that because I know so many women can't come out. I mean, that's the paradox of Me Too, is that... It's about women, women and men coming out and saying that this happened to me. But there are so many people who cannot speak because mm-hmm. they could, they f- risk, they fear being fired, and they can't speak. And you know, part of the whole point about Me Too is doing it for those women as well and changing the system so it doesn't happen to them. In terms of how Downing Street handled it, did they take it absolutely seriously? From oh yes, yeah, they were. The outset. Yeah, they were incredibly. You know, there was the. It was happening so quickly, kind of Monday, Tuesday. I was talking to MPs on both sides, both Labour and Tory, women MPs, and they were saying, you know, it's completely up to you what you do, but you should report this. I I remember talking to um, a female Tory MP who said, if this was the chief executive of an organisation and I'm on the board, I would want you to report him. This is unusual. Would you report it to... Sorry, if, if Theresa May was the chief executive and this was happening, this was being perpetrated by a board member, you would report it to the chief executive. Mm. And I, so I contacted Theresa May's chief of staff and he called me and he was, he was incredibly understanding. And he, in fact, in terms of apology, he apologised on behalf wow. of the Conservative Party. My God. He said, I'm so sorry that this has happened to you. And that's the only apology I've had. And, you know, but it it meant a lot to me. And then... That was at five o'clock, and then by seven thirty, he'd he'd resigned. And any any word from Theresa May at all? No, but I think I think it would be it would be very unusual for her to contact mm. me directly. But I think it was on the apology was on behalf of her as well. And 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 I was told that she took it so seriously, and she was, you know, she told she went in when she saw Fallon. She yeah. she made it clear that he had to resign. Excellent. In terms of then the experience of having been through this, because. I mean, however used to, you know, broadcasting and writing you are and the prominence that you have as a journalist, this is still a very different experience to go through and there's no real training for stuff like that. I mean, do you... Recommend's not the right word, but when you think about other allegations that are out there about... And not even about politicians, Mm. but just in general, anyone who's been the victim of this sort of um, behaviour, is the prospect of reporting it worse than the reality of of having to go public? It's it's completely different for different... Women, I mean, I think about the experience of Kate Maltby, who was incredibly brave because she came forward. One, She was one of the first women to come forward about Damien Green. And the, the difference with, with Damien Green and Michael Fallon is that Michael Fallon went within 90 minutes. Damien Green 
clung on and denied it and refused mm. to do anything. She was then subjected to an appalling character assassination in the Daily Mail. She went through absolute hell. I mean, and she, you know, she shouldn't have had to have gone through that. There was a Cabinet Office inquiry which found her account plausible. She nevertheless had to give evidence to that inquiry. And, she, and, and I think, you know, other women have come to me anonymously to tell me about incidents that they've gone through and wanting to come forward. And my advice has been that it has to be your decision because it may be, this may be really easy and it may go, you know, this, you'll have the full, whatever happens, you'll have the backing of lots of women and a whole movement. However, you may still, it may still get rough at times mm. and it's, and it is, it can be really difficult. And, um, and I said this to, to the woman that I was trying to advise. I said, you have to be, you know, this could only be your decision. I will completely support you. But just to be aware that there could be this media scrutiny and you you have to go into it aware that this, you know, that the person involved could deny it, the person involved could do this. It's definitely a positive thing. The whole Me Too movement is a positive thing and it's great that it's happened. But I think individually, we can't just sort of... we, we have You have to kind of look after every person that wants to come forward, I think. It's yeah. a, it's, it is a difficult thing to happen. And I think I, I almost feel I was lucky in a sense that Michael Fallon resigned because it could have been very different. I mean, in a way, in terms of having an impact, it had immediate impact. Like you say, you know, you're on the phone to dentistry, an hour and a half later he's, yeah. he's toast. And that's justice and that's the way it should have gone. It feels quite rare, really, that you someone could have... I mean, satisfaction's not the right word, I suppose, for what you've been through, but in terms of it costing him his career, mm. that's a that's a valid outcome. Yes, and actually, there were so many different conflicting feelings. I mean, I actually got, I sort of got tipped off. I was told not to say anything, but I got tipped off about half an hour before it went on, yeah. it broke on Sky and the BBC. Straight down and, the bookies. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just the bizarre feeling of knowing something yeah. was about to happen. I mean, you probably, I'm sure, yeah. you know, advisors get this all the time. But knowing this was about to happen, and people are looking at Twitter, and people were still speculating, saying, you know, Michael Fallon is going to, you know, because it was a the story was live all week. Oh, Michael Fallon's going to cling on and everything else, and people being wrong on Twitter, and and when it happened, who thought? I know, but when it happened, this feeling of empowerment that wow, I just I've effectively just made the prime minister fire her defence secretary. Yeah. That is quite a an empowering feeling, but also yes, you know, because I'm I don't know what it is. I sort of have this kind of guilt of I did feel in a way sorry for him because he lost his job oh sod that well <laughs> because I'm you know of I sort of no, probably I have too many you know I just I'm, I don't know um not guilt but actually but I but a, a responsibility that he'd lost his job and actually the way that he's behaved since you know he's not really popped up every two months or every week on the today program and and you know sort of dismissed anything he's he's basically behaved i think he's sort of he's behaved quite i wouldn't say admirably but he's with with a certain amount of dignity and humility yeah. actually i mean that's a, i suppose that's a, another side of the lesson isn't it is can you forgive him for it um because i mean i know that there are other women out there who he that mm this has happened to from him and so I don't want to belittle their experience or excuse away their experience but um, I do forgive him because 
I think that's sort of a a way that you move on from these things. And he resigned. I mean, he resigned really quickly. He hasn't tried to get back into the political front line. I think he acknowledged, whilst he sort of also tried to sort of say it was acceptable 10 years ago, he acknowledged wrongdoing. And I do forgive him because I think it's important in life to sort of look forward. And, you know, I'm not going to take him out for lunch and, you know, or at any t- at all or sort of, you know, I'm going to the Tory party conference next week and, and I'm aware that I might, he I might, might be there. Him. And I'm still kind of, you know, I still expect when I'm booked for a paper review or, you know, in the green room to bump into him at some yeah. point. Be quite good to get a heads up from a producer that happened. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I sort of feel I have a responsibility towards him because I made him lose his job, but yet it was his fault. Yeah, he, he cost himself. The oh, yeah, job. he lost he, he lost his job, but I do sort of feel a sort of some sort of connection there. And yes, I do. I think I do forgive him because because that's the way only way you can move on. Well, it's a, it's a positive way to move on as well, isn't it? Um, and we should move on from talking about it. Uh, in terms of y- your career now, you, you've got the spoon and you're a you're freelance commentator mm-hmm. do you enjoy the freedom of that it's uh, it's great because in a sense because I can you know I three years ago I was the political still a political independent on Sunday and I had a young daughter and I was working um Saturdays and not seeing her at all on a Saturday and so my weekends were Sunday Monday and she just she'd started school and it's it, you know I know a lot of parents sort of find it hard to see their their children but I was basically not there at all on the Saturday and then very very tired on the Sunday so when she started school it was kind of it just didn't seem to work anymore so I gave up you know I was one I think one of only two female political editors and I gave up my job as political editor so I could go and be a freelance political commentator and you know um but also be uh, see my daughter more and pick her up from school and take her to school which is wonderful but you know I don't regret it, but it was it was certainly kind of a change of, definitely a change of career for me. But also, I was happy to do it to, you know, to take care of my daughter and and I and I see her more than most parents see their children, and I know that's a that's a wonderful thing. And then I can write about politics yeah. in between the school hours and sometimes after school hours. <laughs> and you know, I think when David Davis resigned on on a late on a Sunday night, yeah. I was writing about that. So you can be really it's it's great to have that flexibility. Um, I probably miss I think I miss reporting from Westminster, yeah. right in the thick of it. Though. You can always go back to it. Yeah, the opportunity is always there. In, yeah. in terms of um, what the the modern role of a journalist and a commentator involves, online is so much of it now, and mm. particularly social media, and that's. Um, how we sort of first met was on social media, I suppose. It's sort of weird because you feel like you know people. I feel like we've yes. known each other for years. Yeah. I mean, today's the first time we've actually met. Yeah. And I have so many friendships with people where I say to people, oh, I'm meeting a mate, uh, and it's the first time I've met them. And yes. that's one of the great strengths and one of the great um, beauties of, uh, of social media is that you can forge friendships with people. Um, now, you also went viral recently because of, not through any political um, revelation, but... Uh, because of the way that your daughter eats honey on toast. <laughs> yes, and who would have thought it was such a bizarre thing to go viral about? But um, but yeah, yesterday morning she was having a breakfast, and she's sort of—I mean, she's eight, and eight-year-olds are just great at doing their own thing and forging their own, you know, path. And I'd, I'd made a honey on toast, and she'd—and I noticed she was eating it upside down, so the honey was on. And I said, 
what are you doing? And she said, well, it's because the honey hits the tongue first, so you get the taste of the She's honey. so right. And when she said it, I just thought, that's the sort of almost... I mean, I know every parent is, you know, thinks their child's amazing, but I just thought <laughs> this is an amazing revelation. So I tweeted about it, thinking it would be kind of, you know, get a couple of likes, whatever. <laughs> and then... Um, and then it did go slightly viral, and then sort of Gary Lineker replied saying that he eats <laughs> his chocolate eclairs upside down yeah. and has been doing so for 50 years. Yeah. And I just thought that's an, an amazing, because you get the chocolate first, yeah, and course. then you said that you eat your chocolate digesters upside that's down. Right. And this, and, the, and it got so much sort of, you know, so many people were saying that their child eats their pizza upside down, and it just, it's one of those things where you think that kind of children know better about so many things because they just do things naturally. That's right. And then it's, drummed out of them because of rules and manners and you know the proper way to do things by adults but actually we should let, let them be more creative and let them you know do their own thing a bit more maybe i don't know it's it's a <laughs> well there's a there must be a political lesson in there somewhere about original thinking and thinking out of the box what made me laugh was seeing i think it was the poke website yes. write the story up in a really clickbait when it was like Mother reveals daughter, you know, mother's da- mother reveals daughter's shocking way of eating toast yes. or whatever. Yeah, and like how, because you're a journalist, I think of you as a journalist, but that's because I know you as a journalist, and because um, you're not my mum. Um, <laughs> how weird is it to see a picture of yourself and like be described as mother? Yes. I thought that was the weird bit for me. It was. It's, I think it was this mum, wasn't it? It that's was really, it. really bizarre. And again, yeah, I sort of, I think being being a journalist for so long. You know, nobody goes into journalism to be famous, I don't think, unless you're sort of aspiring to be, you know, a foreign correspondent. And um, and so and and I and I love writing about other people and I love reporting on other people because I think sort of human nature is so fascinating and interesting. And it is quite strange to be written about and whether it's sort of Me Too last year or Honey on Toast yesterday, (laughs) it is quite a bizarre thing to think. And, And you're suddenly kind of aware that, you know, some sort of, you know, a half thought on Twitter could become a story, and yeah. I, but I also think is it really is it really a story? I don't know. It's is it a talking point? I guess it's a talk. It's know. a talking. It's got everyone talking. It's really. It's <laughs> one of the things we go because it feels it's a small thing, honey on toast. But yes. actually, there's a bigger point, like you say, about rules yes. and about logic and why humans behave in a certain way, and it and maybe about, it's part of a wider thing. I think, and yeah, definitely, and I think also. I don't know whether, you know, maybe this morning should do a segment on, like, you know, we're going to test five things that you should eat upside down. Maybe it's just an idea. But um, well, Should we clear the food is upside down, not the person? Yes. Yeah. Start doing handstands trying to eat honey on toast. <laughs> and, yeah, I think, I, I think it is a good talking point. And it's, you know, you're absolutely right. It's about being creative. And sort of there was a story this week about kids having too much homework. And I think mm. that's a, a really good point as well, is that primary school children... They shouldn't really have homework because they're, they are, they're, they're the most almost kind of... I mean, I remember being seven and eight and being so sort of, you know, you're unfettered by the world and yeah. by rules and anything else. And, you know, kind of the teenage years aren't upon you yet. So you can be so free. and oh, totally free as a kid. It's just a wonderful age. I'm completely and curious. And just do what you want. And and having homework and being... I mean, you know, my daughter has homework and sitting her down every day having to do, you know, have you done your spelling? Have you done this? And it's so... It feels like a real battle because it's the only time that we argue, actually, because, I mean, I let her eat what she wants, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you know, yeah, and she, she doesn't like doing it. It, it. There is another side to the online realm, of course. It, it's not all friendship and toast. It, it can be quite ferocious out there. I mean, how yeah. do you... 
And I'm surprised the time that you've been a political journalist, this has changed massively. Because in 2001, mm. this sort of culture didn't exist. Even 10 years ago, really, it didn't. It was just starting Twitter. How do you, do you find it hard to engage with people on Twitter? Do you get a lot of abuse? I do get a, I do get a lot of abuse. I mean, I, um, I've always been quite outspoken anyway about Jeremy Corbyn because I sort of have the long memory of militant, and I sort of and. So it's not like I suddenly sort of decided in 2015 that he was, a, you know, I disagreed with him. Um, and I think one, I noticed that when I started tweeting about that, and this was going back to 2015, I started to get just quite nasty replies and mentions. And I'm not saying it's not it's not just Jeremy Corbyn supporters, you know, everybody online, people, every sort of faction and, and political hue has its bad yes. trolls. But I think there is a sort of, there is, I think they, you know, there is a sense that a lot, a lot more energy goes, perhaps goes into Corbyn supporters because they sort of did, they do feel slightly exonerated by the last year's election results, that they were underestimated. I mean, I completely underestimated Corbyn last election. So they sort of feel like vindicated for being so sort of almost vociferous online. And I think you can be vociferous without being rude, but so much of it crosses into rudeness that I... I mute notifications from people I don't follow, and it's a much easier. Oh, I mute way so many do. people. And it's just, a, but it's it's sad that you have to do that because I do want to engage, and I want <laughs> to engage with people, and I do try to engage with people, but I also won't. I don't want to have kind of, you know. I remember write, actually writing. I made the mistake actually of writing about my dad, a year, about a year and a half ago during during the twenty seventeen election, and he said to me then he couldn't vote Labour for the first time in his life because of anti semitism yeah. actually. Um, it was still, you know, it was, it was an issue back then and for other reasons. And I wrote about it and I got such abuse. And they were they were really rude, not just about me, but about my dad. And I felt so protective over him mm. and so outraged. And I just thought, you know, my dad has voted Labour for, you know, what, 55, 58 years. And that really upset me. And, and it's the personal stuff. I think the personal stuff, when it lands, it can really, really hurt. Yeah. And nobody, you know... It, you can't really stop that. You can't... I don't think the sort of idea that someone had last week at Labour that you can you can sort of ban anonymous accounts, I think, is a bad idea because there are so many accounts that are necessarily anonymous. Yes, yes, That You have course. to have that freedom of debate. Yeah. But also Twitter has to be so much better at cracking down on really abusive... I mean, I've reported abusive accounts all the time and nothing gets done about it. No, that's true. I've had similar problems, although I'm sure not on the scale that you uh, sadly have had to go through. I mean, you can tweet Jane nice things yes. at Jane Merrick twenty three on Twitter. So Thank do you. do try and balance it out. <laughs> I think most people who listen to this podcast are, are, are reasonable folk, yes. so we can change your traffic even if just for a day. Although on the whole, would you say on the whole it's okay? I think do you know yesterday was the lovely. Average day, you I know? got such I got such lovely responses about the toast, and I think that if you kind of, it's almost <laughs> like if you. There are there are people who who tweet Happy Friday, and there are lot there are people who sort of tweet lovely things, and they get criticised for tweeting lovely things. But actually, <laughs> if you tweet something nice, you get a nice reply. It actually does make Twitter a slightly nicer place. And I'm not saying it's all got to be you know motherhood and apple pie, and we've got to have a vigorous debate about whatever. But you can actually also have a nice experience online, and and it's just not you know just not to take things too seriously. I mean, I had to, I I've had to report some nasty stuff sent to my personal email address actually and 
and that's been horrible. But actually, I wouldn't. I don't want to leave Twitter. I can't leave Twitter because I need it for my freelance work. Of course, work. that's the problem with it. But I don't want to leave Twitter either because it can be such a positive place. And I think it's up to people who want to make things a nicer place just to do it yourself, just to just to be more courteous and to and you know you don't you don't have to be so angry all the time about everything. No. Well, that what a good note to end on. We should all be more courteous. And if you're listening to this podcast now, send a courteous message. <laughs> to at Jane Merrick 23 and we can start making the world a better place. <laughs> Jane, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you go, Jane Merrick, what a fantastic guest. And you can follow Jane on Twitter, at Jane Merrick 23. If you look in the notes... Um, Depending on what platform you're listening to this, there are details on how to sign up to uh, The Spoon. Uh, Jane was fantastic. And as always, it's always just brilliant to sit down opposite someone and get their political perspective and understand where it comes from. And it's a mixture of background, experience, insight, variety of different things. Um, and you just realise politics is just such a vast world of so many different experiences and careers and perspectives that change. Um, and Jane was absolutely superb. I did worry a little bit afterwards if we'd dwelt perhaps too long on uh, sexual harassment and the Michael Fallon episode. But um, as with anything, when you become engrossed in a conversation, I think the conversation takes its natural course. So hopefully that wasn't um, too prominent. Uh, in the interview um, you can get tickets for forthcoming political party live episodes although they do sell out months in advance now but always do check at my twitter feed at Matt Ford because sometimes people can't go on the day and there's always a couple of spares knocking around um, my next guest at the end of October is the first minister of Wales Carwin Jones uh, which I'm very excited about uh, in November I'm delighted to say that Emily Thornbury will be my guest at the other palace and in January, David Blunkett. And I'm talking to some... I mean, they're all fantastic. I'm talking to some similarly fantastic individuals about the Christmas specials, which are on sale now at the Leicester Square Theatre, uh, and also about some of the um, live political parties next uh, year. And on top of that, these weekly ones. There's so many people, journalists and, uh, and uh, Brexiteers and everyone else that I'm trying to get round, which is just, from a personal satisfaction point of view, superb to just be able to sit down and talk to these people uh, is a real, real treat. Um, now, as always, you can email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com and a lot of the emails are very, very helpful. Daniel Fenton, <coughs> excuse me, got in touch, said he enjoyed the interview with Al Murray. We had a lot of great feedback about Al. He really is, oh my word, excuse me, <coughs> so rude. I've just got a slight bit of trap wind. What happens sometimes is well, you know how trap wind works. I basically just had a bit of melon and um, it's just slightly repeating on me. I did have a samosa before that. Anyway, that's not the point. Uh, Daniel Fenton writes, he says, I do take issue with a topic you both discussed in that interview that pupils in British schools aren't talking about the British Empire. It is part of key stage three in the national curriculum for history. Ideas, political power, industry and empire, Britain, 1745 to 1901. Well, there you go. Absolutely brilliant. And uh, always good to be corrected. Always good to be corrected in detail. Uh, and there you go. Well, uh, the empire is being taught in British schools. And I hope we can all agree uh, that that is a very good thing indeed. So thank you very much. Uh, Dennis Mooney gets in touch uh, to say you've been listening at the Great Wall of China. 
which is absolutely amazing. He's sent some uh, fantastic photos in, which um, obviously you can't see. But Daniel, Dennis, sorry, thank you for getting in touch. Um, do always let me know where you're listening. Uh, I know I don't mention this every time, but it is cool to know where people listen. So uh, email those to politicalpartypodcast at, at gmail um, dot com. Uh, Jason Smith says, uh, "Hey, I did previously range, I did previously raise concerns about cardigans and slippers, which you mentioned in a pod. To my delight, my thirty-year-old cardigan is out again, getting cold. You had a cardigan for thirty years, Jason. Although to be fair, if it's the right cardigan, I'm sure you'll have it for forty or fifty. Um, he said, Justine Greening was excellent. Um, I thought I'd skip it as I had much better things to do, but ended up at eleven p.m. on a Friday." I had somewhere to go, but you and Justine stopped me. Well, there you go. So you can listen to this any place, anytime, anywhere, which I'm, I think was a, an old branding for... Uh, was it Martini or Cinzano or something like that? Before my time, and sad that I know it. Anyway, this descended into pointless waffle, and, but for tickets to the live shows, go to otherpalace.co.uk and uh, follow me on Twitter at Matt Ford for any... Um, updates and email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com I'll be back soon this episode of The Political Party was produced by Daisy Knight Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.